going to follow along. We're in verse 11, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. You know, sometimes I know the Bible I use has uh, headings, which are, are helpful, but they're not necessarily in the text. But I think this one's really good, and it's what I titled the sermon, Ministry of Reconciliation. It kind of sets there, but I think as we get in this, this will make a little more sense to you. So looking at just the first uh, five verses here, therefore, uh, coming off of uh, the stuff we talked about last week, which was about uh, knowing where you're going when you die. So if you don't know, you can look at that one up or ask somebody that might be able to tell you how that works out. Um, we even got a chart if you want it. So, um, But that's what the therefore, I, I remember somebody wiser than me said, if you ever read in the Bible, the word therefore, you probably should stop and see what it's there for. And so that's kind of where we are. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So kind of coming off of that, therefore. But we have this phrase, and I want to hit this. Um, it might be something, you know, maybe it maybe hasn't been talked about quite in this way. It starts out with knowing the fear of the Lord. That word is kind of there for us. Um, the fear of the Lord, is that something we should know? Well, it looks like it. Uh, what does that mean? You know, I mean, when you come to worship, are you scared? Scared that maybe the sermon might be a little longer than you really want? I mean, it, it, it's a kind of an interesting way. We, we, we use that term a lot. Um, I remember... Uh, I think you can learn a lot of your ethics through uh, the Andy Griffith show if you work through it. Uh, but they, I remember once that uh, if, uh, Andy was going to put the fear of the Lord in Opie. Um, I'll let you figure out what that meant. Uh, we use that term, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. Or, or, or we even use it you know, in a very positive way. Are you a God-fearing Christian? You know, and that's kind of, this is kind of where it comes from here and other places. So I think we need to get this right. Um, and mainly the fear of the Lord. You say, Proverbs 1, 7 is where we get this. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord, and if you ever have the four capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh in the Old Testament text. So the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. It's, in the Psalms, it talks about that then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Other, where, other places, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So what's going on here? Um, what, it says the beginning. It doesn't say the fear of the Lord is everything. But are we supposed to go through our lives just scared of God? And, and I think we have to be, be careful of this word fear. Um, it makes a difference on who God is to you, and I think we'll see that. So knowing that you are guilty before a holy God through the Holy Lord should cause a humble person to fear him and look for a solution. 
This is really where this, why does it start that way? Well, think about that. When Jesus comes on the scene, his first words out of his mouth is, repent. And if you don't know the fear of the Lord and realize you're guilty, you won't repent. So this is the beginning of all important wisdom. If you don't have this, the rest doesn't really matter. You can be uh, you know, afraid of spiders and heights and snakes, and that doesn't really matter if you don't have the fear of the Lord to know that you are, I guess as Jonathan Edwards put it in his great sermon back in the 18th century, sinners in the hand of an angry God, or as Ephesians would put it, sinners in the hand of a wrathful God. So what is this talking about? It's talking about the fact that when we realize, and each one of you who are a believer, there had to be some time in your life where you realize that you were unworthy of God, that he is holy and you are not. And if you don't do anything about that, all that's left is really fear. Um, you see that on the deathbed of people. Some, they're just afraid of what's going to happen to them when they die. Well, that's probably smart. I think the, guy, the, the thief on the cross, I think, thought that, so he did something about it. Uh, not everybody does, and, and my advice to you would be to do that before you get that far down the road, um, and sometimes we don't know when that road comes. So what's the difference between the fear that a person who doesn't believe in God and doesn't have salvation through Christ, the, the stuff we talked about last week, and the one who does? Well, once a person repents of the guilt and experiences Christ's grace, their connection with God changes, right? Now you've got a different relationship with Yahweh. And 1 John 4, I think, really kind of nails this. And I just want to make sure, again, this might be something you've thought about. Maybe you didn't. Uh, there is no fear in love, 1 John says. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So on one hand, we got the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. On the other hand, there is no fear in love. So there's your key, isn't it? I mean, you ever think about that? When you repent, what are you accepting? You're accepting the grace, but it, what the grace is get, given because he loves you, right? We got that one, you know that verse, you know, God loved the world and he gave his only son, grace. So this is the key. Fear has to do with punishment. Jesus takes that away for his true followers. If you're a believer, you, don't, you will not get eternally punished because you've taken on the grace that God gives you through faith. That makes sense? So fear is better described here as reverence and respect for believers. If you're a believer, it's reverence and respect. If you're not, you should fear. Because it really comes down to this. Is, is, is Yahweh your judge or your father? Do you see God as your father that you can come to knowing that he's not going to sever that relationship because he's your father? That's why we get taught by Jesus to pray our father. Uh, it's a relational thing. But if he's not your father, he's your judge. That's the two. It kind of comes back to that chart we had last week. So should you fear God? If, you define, if you're a believer, you've defined that as respect uh, thankfulness, gratitude, uh, reverence, yes. But if you define it as abject phobia, no, not at all. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't happen. It, we see this in the Gospels. Who are the people that follow Jesus? Remember Peter's little encounter? I always liked that one. 
because he gets that big catch of fish. You know, he's not, they're not getting anything, and he's the fisherman, and Jesus is just a contractor or a carpenter. He doesn't know anything about fishing. Um, although when you get in a boat, everybody becomes an expert. Have you noticed that? Use this lure. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely not an expert on catching fish, but... Uh, but, you know, he gets kind of almost mad at Jesus. You know, cat, you know, it was the wrong time of day. They hadn't caught anything. But if you remember getting to the point, when they caught this great catch of fish, you know, you think Peter would be jumping up and down and high-fiving and say, let's go out again. And he says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. He saw the majesty and just a piece of the majesty of Christ through this miracle. And the first thing he felt was unworthiness and probably fear. That's where you start. He knew he was guilty. And when Jesus says, you know, get up and follow me, that had to be quite a, I mean, I'm, we don't have the whole text maybe, but he, what did he feel? He probably felt like, I'm not worthy. And Jesus could say, well, yeah, you're not. That's what I came for, you know, that type of stuff. So I hope that helps. Yes, should you be God-fearing? Yes, in the sense that you realize that if it wasn't for him, you would be uh, liable for eternal punishment too. So I think this verse helps very much because, again, fear has to do with punishment, and that's what the cross takes away from us. So hopefully that helps. So, yes, be God-fearing, but make sure you define it correctly. Because uh, Jesus even says that, you know, do not fear man who can kill the body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Fear him. <laughs> that's the way he says, and that's kind of the way it goes, you know. Um, but that, it's a quick switch, right? I'm sure it was in your life. If, you know, when you believe, it's that fear just flips to reverence so quickly because you know you got the solution. And so that's, I think, what he's talking, knowing the fear of the Lord, realizing that we're uh, not worthy, but we, we get that. And then he, he contends, contend, and he does this a lot. He's done this a lot in, in 2 Corinthians. He ready, reiterates his main motive is to honor Christ. That's what he wants to do, which in turn benefits the people he's talking to. And this is always true of Paul. I think it should be true of us. What other people think of us is always secondary to what God thinks of us. We have to remember. We had this back in, in verse 9. You know, we're, our main job is to please God. And a lot of times, and we see that, right? Have you ever, maybe this week, have you ever said anything that pleases God that somebody didn't like? You don't have to talk very long, right? I mean, just think of some of the social issues in our world. It's not hard to know how we, how we should believe. It's in the Bible. But, boy, it doesn't, you don't win friends and influence people by saying what God thinks about this stuff. And you should do it with respect. I realize that. But we can't. Who are we trying to please? You know, I suppose uh, churches have tried that. We could give that a shot. I mean, we could try to twist the gospel a bit to get more people here. Should we give that a shot? If that ever happens, you need to fire your pastor, I think. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, you can't, obviously, that's not what we do. We're, then we're just pleasing people. Uh, we we got to try to please God. And, and Paul just was, he was just so focused on that. He did not give a rip what other people thought of him. And that we see that in all his letters, especially in this one. And then you get this same thing we had last week, you know, Christ died for all. It contains the theology that happens to a new believer. What happens when they're transformed by the Holy Spirit? Uh, they start to live for Christ and not for themselves. You know, it's the stuff we had at the welcome. What's the number one? Love God. You know, yourself doesn't get there till almost like third. You know, you got love God with all your heart, love others as yourself. 
You know, it's, it's in there, but it's toward the end, right? And the problem with a lot of, you know, we put ourselves first, you know. They always say, you know, you're supposed to look out for number one. And I think you are, it's just that you're not number one. <laughs> it's the old, uh, I haven't used a football metaphor for a while, so let's do it. Uh, the uh, Gail Sayers book uh, was called I Am Third. It was a motto he had, and I don't know how well he kept it. He's, uh, but the idea of the Lord is first, my family and friends are second, and I am third. That's kind of what the, that's kind of the, the way those commandments are. You think about I am third. You know, sometimes we're maybe even fourth. I don't know. But, but it, that's, that's the way to look at it. it. Because if we make our God first, then we become exactly what he wants us to do. So in, in Luke 9, kind of, we, we use this verse a lot. It, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. Uh, I like that daily. Uh, it's not in the Matthew portion of this, although it's implied. You know, not just one time. We think, well, I got the cross, and then I got it, and thanks for the salvation, and then we put that cross down and then take off. It's like, well, no, it's, it's always there. It's not a burden. It's just a focus, right? Uh, but look at that middle part. Isn't that the problem in a lot of generations? It's certainly in our generation, this part right here. Deny yourself. What are we told on commercials? If you deny yourself, you're not going to buy their stuff, right? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, uh, that's just the way it is. The, the mentality is not deny yourself. You know, find yourself. Uh, you know, do things for yourself. And I think that's okay to a point. But if we're putting ourselves first, that's the problem, isn't it? Um, most of the problems in the Christian church become because we don't do this. We don't deny ourselves. We don't put God first. It's like, well, if it, if, you know, if, if it feels good to you, then do it, right? Is that what this is saying? Um, and the thing is, and we know this, don't we? When we deny ourselves, then we get what we really, really were created to have. It's just sometimes hard to get that through our minds. Uh, and you don't have to be self-deprecating your whole life either. Uh, I've said that before. If, if you're following Jesus and it really, really is terrible all the time, you're probably doing it wrong. I mean, we're having fun now, right? I mean, I know you guys can't hardly stay in your seats. You know, you want to do the wave and all that stuff. It's such a good sermon. Um, you know, but again, you know, why do we even do these? You ever thought about that? Why do we do sermons? Why do we even worship? Well, we, wor we come to worship God because we're told to praise him. But one of the things a sermon will do is it focuses you on something other than what you're normally focused on, whether you like it or not, right? We focus on the word, you know. And I didn't come up with this stuff, right? It didn't say in the beginning was the Blu-ray, right? God's the one that came out with this text stuff. I mean, I feel pretty good. I like reading it, but, you know, if you don't, that's really your problem, not mine. Um, figure it out. They got it on tape. You can, there's a video versions and all those types of stuff. But why, why a text? God must think that's what we're supposed to have. When you think about that, you think about this just for a second. If I say Jesus, is something coming to your mind? I bet if we could, you could all draw really well and we get pictures, I bet everybody would have a different picture. Because it's personal, you know. And I think that's what the word does. We think about it and we're, we're created to have our imagination start figuring this stuff. You've done that. You read a book. I remember the Chronicles of Narnia, I read that first book, and then they had the movie. And I'm like, well, the witch doesn't look like that. 
you know, you do that with a lot, and it's like, you know, uh, why? Because you, when you read it, your imagination has figured out what that looks like, and then somebody else's imagination is, well, it's not the same as yours. Um, yeah, and sometimes we get smacked around realizing that Jesus doesn't look like a Swedish person, probably. But, you know, maybe he was one of the only blonde, blue-eyed Palestinian Jews, possibly, <laughs> I don't know. But that's kind of the way we have it in our mind. But I think it's good to do that. But again, it, coming back, you know, denying ourselves is meaning putting him first. It's not just not doing things for yourself. It's putting him in there. Bonhoeffer puts this well in the cost of discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The old is gone, the new is there. Because only the one who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. I love that line. It's kind of what Luke 9 saying. Do you ever think about that? We try to do both, right? You know, we just kind of say, well, God, I'm going to bring you in, and then hopefully you'll help me with some stuff, especially when I'm down. Uh, but other than that, I kind of, you know, don't call me, I'll call you. You know, and that's not really what it's about either, is it? It's, it's you have to die to your own will uh, uh, to follow Christ, as, as Bonhoeffer uh, very well uh, puts it there. So, as we look at the next ones, you got to think about that. That's what's coming off. So he's, he's saying this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to put God first in our lives. We're supposed to realize that the fear that he gave us uh, comes to reverence and respect because of salvation. And then we can start looking at a heavenly point of view is the way he puts it. So verse, uh, going on to verse 16. From now on, therefore, there it is again, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the, word, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It might just be possible that every one of those verses has a song. Um, th this little portion of 2 Corinthians is pretty thick with verses that we know. We might not know they were here. Um, but there's a, you know, new creation, ambassadors, be sent. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff here, and we'll kind of pick through it quickly. But it was Paul's practice to view people not primarily in terms of nationality, but in terms of spiritual status. He came from a group that did the, the first one. Thus, the Jew-Gentile division was far less important to him than the Christian-unbeliever distinction. You can see that through all his letters, especially 1 Corinthians and the end of Romans. It's like, I don't care your ethnicity as a main thing. It's always important, and we should obviously honor those. But uh, the main thing, are, are, are you following Jesus? Because the rest of it doesn't matter, ultimately, right? And he does a really good job of that. So this is what he's saying. See things from a heavenly point of view. Uh, you know, Jesus, again, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, even in our own life, yes, race reconciliation should be something we always try to do because that's very godly. But what difference does it make if we reconcile the races if they're not reconciled to God? It doesn't really matter, ultimately, right? 
We could do both. <laughs> that would be kind of good. Hopefully those of us who are reconciled to God see that we should not have silly differences just because of race and culture. I mean, that uh, it doesn't make sense. So in, ver- in, in verse 17, he talks about the fact that whenever a person comes to be a part of the body of Christ by faith, there is a new act of creation on God's part. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what we tend to do, and I think that's okay to some extent, we try to figure out what that feels like. And what does it feel like when I change from this creation to that creation? And the Bible really never talks about how it feels. I don't know how it's supposed to feel. It probably felt different for you than it did for me. Sometimes it's quick. Sometimes it takes time. Uh, I always like to use Paul and Peter. You know, do you think Paul kind of knew when he got new created? I mean, that was kind of a unique experience, wasn't it? Acts 9, we went through Acts years ago. I mean, Paul was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I got a couple days there. What about Peter? I, I wonder, it would be interesting to ask him. And I, don't do that because we're not supposed to talk to dead people. Um, it's in there quite often. Uh, even though no matter what city you go to, it seems like that's a big industry. I mean, you know people can look at my palm and tell me about dead people? And then tea leaves and cards? That's just stupid, right? I mean, why would think, but, yeah, whatever, no getting off on a tangent. You know, but when did Peter know that he was saved? Was he saved when he's like, get away from me, I'm a sinful man? I don't know, maybe. Was he saved at Caesarea Philippi when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Was he unsaved when he said, but don't go there and get killed? <laughs> you know, did he get resaved when he said, I'll die for you, and then unsaved when he denied him three times? You know, see, it, I have to think if you ask Peter, he'd say, what difference does it make? I am now. I mean, he may be able to point to a time. What am I getting at? That seems to be a problem in some church. You know, you got to know the date. Well, I don't know. Maybe you do, and that's great. Um, I would focus more on what you feel about now and, and look in the past. I mean, you can do it, right? I've done that. You can do that. When did I feel guilty before a holy God and know I needed grace? I don't know. It might have been when you were three. might have been when you were 33. might have been yesterday. You don't get more saved because it was longer. Um, I don't think the... Uh, criminal on the cross is in like, you know, level zero. And then the one that was there the whole, their whole life for the most part is in level, I don't know, what do they have? 77. Let's go with that. <laughs> you know, I don't think it works that way. Um, you can't be partially saved, right? But, you know, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, you can do what you want with it. I think it's healthy to think about your life. A lot of people do grow up in the church, but think about when did it become real to you. That's not hard. And you might not know it was, you know, March 28th, 1943. I don't care. But what part of your life was that real to you, you know? You can tell somebody, but I don't know. And if really you really want a date, I don't know, go home, get on your knees, give your life to Christ, write the date down and hand it to him. There you go. The Bible tells us we know we're saved by how we feel, who we serve, and how we act. Don't look at a past experience. Those are important. But what has it done to you? Because you're a new creation, right? The old is gone. Didn't we just read that? (laughs) The new has come. It should look different, you know, as you go forward. So 
you get this new act here, John 3, 3 is the qu- you know, quintessential born again, born from above. Truly, truly, I say to you, and I lo- love the way he puts this, unless one is born again, he cannot, we kind of put salvation in here, and it does imply that, but you can't even see the kingdom of God. Think about the difference. You've got Peter, who they get the catch of fish, and he's like, get away from me, I'm a sin. He's starting to see the king, and he's not worthy. And you've got other people on the shore that all they see is the fish. Why? Nothing's happened in here yet. And that's an act of God for those who seek. Galatians 6 helps us too. For there's neither circumcision, you know, Jewish folk, or counts for anything, or uncir- but a new creation. It doesn't make any difference who your mama is when it comes to faith completely. And as verse 16 clearly shows, the main area of change is the attitude toward Christ and other people. This is what you want to look for. Do I love God and love his people? Or do I want to? Or even maybe one step back, do I know I should want to? Um, Sometimes that happens, you know. I mean, luckily in our church we don't have this, but in some churches... Other believers can be annoying. Um, and sometimes loving people's hard. <laughs> That's why it's an act of will. If you're waiting to feel love for them, eh. I think once in a while that's probably hard for people to love us, right? So, but in 1 John 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, other believers pretty clear, isn't it? This comes from John. Um, That is what you should focus on. Where am I now? What am I doing? What are my motives? What are my desires? And if you don't have the motives and desires that you know God wants you to have, then pray for those. 18 and 19 are similar, and this expands in Romans 5, but the whole idea is that reconciliation is a divine act by which, on the basis of the death of Christ, and only that, all the Old Testament sacrifices point to it, all of our evangelism points back to it, that God's holy displeasure against sinful man, we see that in, in Genesis 3, being put out of the garden because of sin, and that enmity between God and man is removed. That's why it's called reconciliation. And man was restored to a proper relationship, kind of back to Eden to some extent. Um, that's what reconciliation is all about. It's only one way. We've had that before. So it's not some polite ignoring uh, or reduction of hostility that God says, well... I don't know, today maybe I'll just kind of let you off the hook. No, it's total objective removal. You know, I know this is kind of a metaphor, but God looks at you as a Christian and says, there's nothing there to be mad at. There's no no wrath because, to quote uh, John Stott, he looks at you and he sees Jesus. That's kind of cool, isn't it? God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that verse. Just smack, you know. It's the old idea that you, you put, you know, the, the charges on there, and they're gone. You are acquitted. It is finished. So remember, reconciliation is always the main goal of forgiveness. We had, a, you know, a mini-week series on, on forgiveness uh, in the spring. It's primarily about healing personal relationships. If you're going to forgive somebody, it's about reconciling. If you're not reconciling, there hasn't been forgiveness and repentance. And for us, it's this personal connection through faith. That's how we we, we get it. So these last two verses, we're going to do the last one first here quick. This is a song. We've sung this a lot. Um, It's a Chris Tomlin song. 
uh, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. This is the verse. Um, it's frequently used in songs. Some of the old hymns have it too. The first part of the verse is one that you go to the mat for. We'll sing about it. Jesus never sinned. Got that? So how many times did Jesus sin? Zero. And, and that, that's, a, that's in the Bible. Here's the explicit places. 1 Peter 2, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. That's pretty clear. This, why do I say this? This is out there. You know, we're trying to take God down to our level when the whole Bible is trying to bring us up to his as far as in our actions. New creation, you know. Jesus doesn't need to be a new creation. We don't want to turn him into us. What was that song in the 90s? Uh, what if God were one of us? Just a, what was it, a schmuck? I don't know. Something on the bus. Slob, maybe. I don't know. No, we don't bring God down to us. He did that. He came down to us, but not so he could be in our mess and become messy and sinful like us to bring us up to him. The new creation is us, not him. We get that clearly in the Bible. 1 John 3, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest, in this case, the final high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So if you didn't know that, Jesus didn't sin, and it's quite important that he didn't sin. You know, if you think if you're uh, in the middle of a lake and you can't swim, which is not a, probably a pleasant thought, I guess, do you want somebody who's also drowning to come and help you? How would that help? Jesus came and sinned and like, okay, we can just all drown. <laughs> or do you want somebody with a foot on the shore <laughs> that has a leg up to throw you some life preserver? I mean, I think we want, that's Jesus. He can help us out of this, not come down into it. He came into it, yes, but not, it didn't conquer him. He conquered it. Now, the second part, we have to be careful here. He became sin who knew no sin. It's obviously somewhat metaphorical. A person can't literally become sin because sin is not a personal entity, it's an action against God, right? Um, but the real consequences for the true follower of Christ is what this is talking about. In my opinion, the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts this really well. And lots, a lot of times, if you're studying your Bible and you see a verse, you're like, what the heck is this saying? Get a different translation. You can go online. You can have them. You know, I, my, I've got like 48 here and. Greek and Hebrew, you can look, you know, you don't, you really don't need the Greek and Hebrew that much, you know, it was fun going through that 19 years of study or whatever it was, but, uh, and it's good to know, I guess, for, for me, but you get that, you think about, you, you the, here's the ESV, over 100 scholars who know those languages, then you get the NLT that has 150, then you can grab the NIV that has 200, well, there you got, what, close to 500 different scholars who know this, and you get different ways to translate the same thing, so here, you know, here it says he became sin who knew no sin. And then NLT kind of cleans it up a little bit better for us. For God made Christ who never sinned, which is what we talked about in the first part, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God. This is the idea. He became the sin offering. This is an Old Testament thing. That's what you did. You came and you, your heart was repentant and you came and did the symbol of the sin offering. That's what this is talking about. Because um, you get into some weird theology. People say, well, he became sin, so he was the evil and all this. Don't, don't, don't go there. That's not what this is talking about. I, this is the way I look at it is kind of the Superman thing. You know, 
Superman. <laughs> what that has to do with Superman, but that's where we're going right today. Um, you've got this, you know, that, nothing, you know, the bullet doesn't go in. That's the way I look at it. You know, the sin can hit Jesus, but he can handle it. You know, I've heard people say, well, all the sins of the world came on him on the cross. Maybe it did, but guess what? He handled it. And I don't think we should step back and say, well, I wonder how he felt. If we needed to know how Jesus felt, the Bible would have told us how he felt. What we need to know is that he won. <laughs> That's the main thing. We're reconciled back to God. And we're going to, this summarizes what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, completely obliterates it, and we get his righteousness. And that's what it says here. We become the righteousness of God. And again, the Father looks at us and sees the Son by grace through faith. And finally, this last verse, we'll hit this uh, pretty quickly. But we've been using this. This is where it comes from. This is a stand to reason. We use a lot of their material. We're going to do uh, the tactics class again, which is very helpful if you're thinking about coming on Wednesday nights. It'll it certainly help you know your faith and it'll really help you share your faith uh, in a way that's just natural. Uh, it's just kind of an ask questions way of doing things and being able to defend it. But uh, stand to reason, Greg Kokel and the folks there use the ambassador model, and this is where it comes from. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's a good verse to remember. And what does that mean? God making his appeal through us. You know, there's some days that you, you wonder, did he know what he was doing? But that's what he does, you know? Wouldn't it be easier just to send angels all the time? You know, fear not, believe Jesus, thank you, it's over, move on. He didn't do that, did he? He sent out people. This is his plan. I, you've, I've, you've probably heard that theological joke where after Jesus dies and the angels are all, you know, doing their high fives and he resurrected and he comes back and he's sitting up there and he's like, okay, you know, we're ready to go. What's the plan? He says, well, I'm going to send those guys that were mostly clueless during that three-and-a-half-year ministry, and we're going to change the world through them. And Gabriel says, what's plan B? There is no plan B. <laughs> we are the ones he's going to use, he says. You know, it's kind of, you know, on one hand, it's a little scary. Maybe not fear, because we're not supposed to have that. But uh, certainly... A privilege, I guess, that he thinks enough of us that we could do this. We just have to, and he's given us a lot of material, so don't worry about that. So we are ambassadors for Christ. It's good that you think of yourself that. What's an ambassador do? Represents one country to another. We, we represent a new creation to a fallen world. And you got to do it with diplomacy and all this. So you represent Christ and his kingdom to those who are not part of it. And you don't need to go and tell them they're going to hell to start out your conversation. Um, you can try that. It probably won't work. How does that work for you, you know? If somebody did that to you, you probably would. So God has chosen us as his primary, uh, us as his primary appeal to lost people. So here's some qualities, and we'll end with this. What is a good ambassador for? This comes off the STR website to give credit because um, they have a whole ambassador's model. Are you ready? Are you prepared for chances to represent Jesus? I hope, I really hope y'all showered today. Um, that's why we have this gap, uh, in case you didn't. Uh, but the, you know, times when you're just doing nothing, out doing yard work or whatever, think about people in your life that you could be ready. What, what if they ask this? What if they ask that? You know, and sometimes it might work out that way. You got to be reasonable. You need to know your own convictions 
be able to give reasons for it. If somebody asks you, why do you believe in Jesus? Can you tell them? Uh, if you can't, we'll work on that. You need to be clear. Use careful language with the goal of informing others. Don't bait and switch people. You need to be honest. Careful not to misrepresent another's view. Ask questions. Find out what they don't believe before you tell them what they should. And don't underestimate the demands in the gospel. When God calls them, they are supposed to die to themselves, deny themselves and follow him. And if they don't want to do that, you, they probably should think about it for a while. And finally, you know, be humble. An ambassador understands that all of us hold limited knowledge. And I guess the main one, too, is that we're dependent. All of this and the effectiveness is only going to come because of God's power, not ours. But we should be good ambassadors. Let us pray. Father, as we look through this text, uh, I just pray that each one of us looks as ourselves as a new creation uh, in Christ, not fearful of you, but respectful of what you've given us. And may we always, always want to be your ambassadors, representing you well by what we know, what we say, and how we act. Amen.